I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Michael Gersh was well on his way to a successful career in the business world when he decided to pursue his true passion, baseball. Gersh's dream came true when he landed a job with the Cardinals in 2006 as the team's coordinator of amateur scouting. He would move up the org chart over the next decade, culminating in him being named St. Louis's general manager during the 2017 season. During Gersh's time with the Cardinals, St. Louis has made seven postseason appearances, winning three National League pennants and two World Series titles. I had a chance to sit down with Gersh in his office at Roger Dean Stadium in Jupiter, Florida, to discuss his business background, why fans think they can run major league teams better than those that actually do, and how the Albert Pujols free agent negotiations literally made him sick to his stomach. Enjoy this conversation with Cardinals Vice President and General Manager, Michael Gersh. Mike, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. So you've got a unique story when it comes to your entry into baseball. You essentially cold called or emailed, in this case, executives around the league with a thesis paper you had written. Tell me about the paper. Uh, so in 2005, I was uh, working in consulting, doing strategy and economic consulting um, for, for big Fortune 500 companies and, uh, and knew that someday I wanted to be the GM of a baseball team. Um, I had done nothing to make that effort, and so I decided to, uh, to to at least try and see see if see if I could you know Moneyball had come out like the, the the idea of being the GM baseball team was a lot more real at that point in my life than it was ten years before when you know it didn't seem like there was any way a guy who got cut from every baseball team after you know <laughs> after he turned twelve was going to make it. So I did I did a research paper on the major league draft. I looked at basically the nineteen nineties, looked at first round picks, looked at how much money teams saved by, for example, I grew up in Chicago, the White Sox drafted Frank Thomas by having Frank Thomas for his first six years of his career. If they didn't have him, they would have been on the free agent market signing really good first baseman to equate to the, uh, the production he had. Instead, they had Frank Thomas, who they were paying you know, close to the minimum and arbitration. So I quantified what that was worth, uh, compared you know, the first and second and third picks to the 28th, 29th, and 30th picks, high school to college, pitchers to hitters, and I just sort of wrote up this paper, and then, like you said, I kind of just spammed baseball via email. I, uh, <laughs> for example, I, I, Mo was one of the people I emailed, um, and I sent it to John.Mosalock and Mosalock.John and jmosalock at cardinals.com at cardinalsbaseball.com. I didn't know where any of these were going, so I would, I would send out one to six or eight addresses, and I had a Hotmail account back then, and all the Hotmails would come back and say, these emails don't exist, and I'd check off the ones that did exist and see what happened. So. How long did that take? I think I I started doing it probably like around Christmas of '04. Started working on this little project. Spent you know I, again I was working. I had twin daughters. One of the things was I, I we had twin babies, so on nights and weekends we couldn't go anywhere. We like you know social life had sort of ceased to exist. Sure. So when they went to bed, I would stay up and work on this until they woke up for their you know midnight feeding or whatever. And so I'd do a little bit here and a little bit there and. Um, I sort of sent out all the emails just shortly before the 2005 um, draft. So like in May of 2005, ended up talking to a few guys, kind of did a little bit more work, redid some of the same idea with the top prospect list from Baseball America at the trade deadline. So sort of, if you're gonna, should you give up your top 20 prospect or two of your you know 70 to 100 type prospects? Like what would you rather have? What would you rather give up? And uh, sent that out to the same group of people. This time I actually knew whose email was going to work a little <laughs> right. bit better, but. Uh, so yeah, I just went through this long, slow process and then ended up 
um, at the end of the 20, 2005 season, the Cardinals had an opening, and I interviewed with Jeff, Luno, and Mo, and, and uh, got an entry-level job in the scouting department, and scouting. So you reached out to all 30 teams, and how many replied? Um, I sent out emails to, I think, 28 of the 30 teams. I think my wife was supportive of this idea. I, I, I don't think our the two of us and our newborns were heading to New York on like an entry-level salary to like... Like, we kind of figured that was, like, not going to work. Sure. So I think I sent it to 28 of the 30 teams. I probably got, like, 8 or 10, you know, thanks, you know, don't call us, we'll call you type responses. And I got, there were three assistant GMs at the time who emailed me back, who set up a phone call, and who I talked to. And it was uh, John Daniels, John Mosellock, and David Forst. And so I talked to all of them. And I can remember having these conversations with them and realizing that, like, all the time I quote-unquote wasted reading baseball articles and studying things and stuff like I could have a conversation with assistant GM and feel like it was a real conversation not like I was way behind and I totally screwed up my analysis because I didn't know about X or Y you know it was it was and that, that's sort of when it became like wait a second this actually this actually might lead somewhere so you had these conversations did, did you come away from those conversations thinking I could get a job out of this or I mean you said it wasn't until the end of that year I would say I came year. out of those I came out of those conversations more hopeful that it was feasible I also learned in those conversations that the baseball sort of hiring cycle, like you don't get hired like in the middle of June in baseball, right? Like it's sort of a, you get to the off season, people set up their budgets for the next year, you know? Um, and I also kind of knew that this was back again, back in 2005, there was sort of two sorts of teams. There was teams that valued analytics and valued economic analysis and that sort of thing. And a lot of them already had people and there were teams who didn't value that stuff. And so it was hard to even get in front of them. And right. so I was sort of in the spot where, like, the guys who would talk to me, like, already had people doing stuff like that. And the guys who, you know, so I was, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. But I felt like at least, look, when I sent out the emails, I didn't know about, you know, I thought I might just hit send 30 times and that'd be the end of my baseball adventure. I had no idea. But, so uh, so if that had out. happened, where would you be today? So, again, I was working for Boston Consulting Group in the Chicago office. I'd been there for a year. I would have been there about a year and a half when I was sending out these emails. I knew that consulting as like a lifestyle and as a, as a thing wasn't what I was going to do for long. So I probably would have started looking at some of the clients I'd worked with and, and trying to figure out where, where, but I'd be probably running strategy or finance department for, I think I'd do something smaller. My, my, my dad had started out with a smaller company and, and it had grown into a, a big company. I think I'd be more likely to go you know, start with something relatively small and try to build a company as opposed to, you know, working at some Fortune 100 company. But I'd be in the business world somewhere, for sure. So when you start with the Cardinals, your wife and you moved to St. Louis with your one-year-old twins, I'm sure it was very exciting. By, by that point, we she was pregnant with our third, too. So, oh, so yeah, just even better, yeah. Just another wrinkle to throw Total no-brainer sure. at that point, right? <laughs> uh, as exciting as it was from a professional level... Was it terrifying from a personal level to be making this jump in that yeah, situation? absolutely. Yes, my wife was incredibly supportive up until the moment I had a job offer, and then she kind of freaked out for a minute. Um, but then she was right back to being supportive again. Um, I, my wife and I both grew up in the suburb of Chicago. Um, you know, we both sets of grandparents. You know, one was year-round in Chicago. One was doing the Florida Chicago thing in the winter. But like, we were taking the grandkids away from the grandparents. We were taking, you know. It was uh, it was a big decision, but when we when we moved down to St. Louis that first year, we we rented a house. When I uh, told office manager at BCG that I was leaving, 
I said, look, here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm leaving. Um, I, it's possible I'll be back in a year begging for a job. I don't really know, you know? So we, uh, it was, it was a, it was a leap of faith, but I mean, couldn't have been more excited about it, but it was a little bit, a little bit intimidating. As lucky as I've been to end up in St. Louis with the baseball history and the success we've had and, and, and working for Mo and Mr. DeWitt for so long, the, the consistency of it, we didn't like choose St. Louis. It was just, that was the one team who like had a job, St. right? St. Louis chose you. Yeah. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, I have all these friends. I know all these people. I mean, I'd been there like once before for a weekend in college, but that was about it. So your first job with the Cardinals was coordinator of amateur scouting. What were your responsibilities? So the amateur scouting department has, you know, on the order of 15 or 20 scouts, they don't live in St. Louis for the most part. They live in, a lot of them live in California, Texas, Florida, you know, Atlanta area, right? And uh, so there's always, we always have somebody in the office who, who acts as coordinator, um, combination of dealing with expense reports, um, dealing with HR when one of our scouts moves or has a baby or has to do something with the HR department. Um, the, 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 a lot of my time, is best described as I was like the iPhone when there was no iPhone. So guys would call and say, I'm about to get on a flight and I forgot to rent a car in Charlotte. Can you have, can you, can you have a car waiting for me? Cause they didn't have, they, there was no smartphone, right? They, they couldn't do it, right? They would call and say, I'm trying it's to like find- medieval times or something. It was, yeah, <laughs> hard to imagine this now, but they would call and say, I'm driving through, you know, small town USA, trying to find the high school. You know, and okay, what street are you on? You know, what direction are you headed? I, I just passed second. Okay, is first next or is third next? It's third. Okay, turn around, go the other way, right? <laughs> so I spent a lot of time on Google Maps and on, you know, making flights and renting cars and just making sure guys were getting where they needed to go. That was my primary responsibility. I had a passion for like the valuation analytics part of it. So I spent sort of all my extra time, all my nights and weekends, if you will, doing doing analysis of Pat. Like now that I had access to the Cardinals data, I could do a better version of my draft analysis, right? Not look at just the first round, but look at the whole draft, right? Not look at, you know, do similar analysis on free agents and, and, and trades. And so I was doing all that sort of stuff. That wasn't why I was hired. Like I needed to be hired into a job that existed. And that was the coordinator of amateur scouting, but I did a lot of other work at the same time. I'm laughing at the idea of in your extra time with your twins and your newborn at home. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, Although I guess if you're living in a place where you have no roots, it's not like you had a huge social life, I well, guess. Also, if you think about it, like when I was in consulting, I quote unquote wasted all this time on baseball, right? Now all that wasted time is kind of work, right? So even now when people ask me like, oh, like do you put in long hours? Like, well, yeah, I do. But a lot of my time is reading articles about baseball or keeping up on baseball, which is like if I was, you know, running a bank, I'd still be doing all that, right? So the beauty of... This job is that the line between work and hobby is so blurred that you're sort of like, nah, it's kind of, you know, do I have a lot of free time? Well, it depends how you define it, right? Like, I'm doing stuff that I like to do, so I don't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's work a lot of times. You said you had to take a job that existed. In 2008, you were named director of a department that didn't exist, the right. Baseball Development Department. According to your bio in the media guide, was a group focused on supporting baseball operations via internet applications, analytical models, and decision support tools. What was it like essentially running a brand new department that had no history? So at, up until that point, we had a few people like me who had been hired for a job and sort of did, a, did some other stuff on the sides. Um, most of us were working in or around the amateur scouting department because Jeff Luno had been the, the um, sort of most passionate consumer of analytics and that sort of thing. Um, so like Sig, for example, who's now with the Astros, was, was working within the amateur scouting department 
basically as an analyst, but sort of not, you know, but it was all within the amateur scouting. And when, when Mo took over as GM, he wanted to not have all the analytical guys working in amateur scouting, but have the analytical guys working for all of baseball ops. And so that's why we created the baseball development group to sort of house the analysts, the guys who created our internal system for um, scouts to do their scouting reports, for coaches to do their game reports, for medical guys to do their doctor's notes. Like mm-hmm. instead of being all sort of you know housed within one department, we started working across base, you know, player development, international, the major leagues, the major league decision making, amateur. And so taking over that, it was it was a totally new department, but it was mostly people who had already existed, just kind of now spreading our wings beyond the one department we had worked with so far. And then we started adding people and adding responsibilities over time. You once said, I didn't know how things really worked until I got a job in baseball. How different was it from what you had imagined it would be? <sighs> That's a great question for like 10 years ago, because now I've been in it so long, it's hard to remember like how I, how I used to think it would be. I think in a lot of ways... When you're looking at professional sports, when you're looking at professional athletes, professional sports, whatever, as an outsider, you sort of think of them as only athletes or only coaches or whatever. And the longer you're in this, like, it's, all just, it's all just people, right, doing the best they can to make decisions. And they all have kids who get sick and spouses and, you know, like, like you know, we talk about me moving with twins, right? Like, I actually got to make that choice, right? When we trade, you know, Joe Blow from from here to San Diego, he's expected to be in San Diego tomorrow for a game, right? And his wife and kids have to just sort of figure it out, right? And so I think some of that stuff is just you realize once you get inside and get to know people that they're all just people and they're all just, you know, trying to, you know, do the best they can and live in their lives. And it is the first time that you're part of a trade that up until that, up until the first time I was like really involved in the trade, I'd made trades in fantasy sports and <laughs> right. like nothing happened, right? Like all that happened is like two players switched teams on a Yahoo account, right? That, that was it, right? And now you're like, holy cow, like he's friends with all these guys on the team. He played at the, all of the minors with them. He and he doesn't know, you know, he couldn't find whatever town on a map, right? And we're just sending him off to it just it's just different. It feels a lot more real and a lot more like personal once you kinda get involved. You said you'd always wanted to be a, a baseball GM. Were there baseball executives that you admired from afar growing up or, or as you were you know, starting to think about getting into the game? It's a good question. I don't remember individuals. Look, I grew up in an era of baseball in Chicago where there wasn't a lot of success on either side of town, really. There was the occasional, uh, you know, 83, 84, 89. The fact that I can name all the years that a, a <laughs> Chicago team made the playoffs is sort of depressing. Um, there wasn't any one individual um, that necessarily got me into it. I, I got into it. So a lot of people talk about Bill James as sort of their entryway into it. I think I was like the half generation later where I got into it reading like Rob Nyer on ESPN.com or ESPN Sports Zone or whatever Sports it is, sure. com, right? And then that led me to find baseball prospectus and those sorts of things. And so I kind of got into it from from that angle. Like I, I, I was a math undergrad. Analytics is sort of the, the thing that I've always been attracted to. And and when I was in college and, and early in my career, analytics of baseball were a thing that was developing, that was interesting, that was fascinating. Analytics for any other sport like didn't even exist. There was no, nobody was doing it. I mean, like even now it's hard to do analytics on football because there's 22 guys running around for you know every play. But baseball sort of lent itself to this sort of, and I also I like to do anyway. So, growing up in Chicago, I think you were raised in a split home, Cubs White Sox. Yeah, yeah, somewhat unique, uh, unique. Uh, childhood that way. So my dad is a South Sider. 
absolute love of the White Sox. Um, I don't think he'd ever set foot in Wrigley Field, despite being born and raised in Chicago, until he had kids who somehow became Cubs fans. Uh, my mom was a North Sider. She couldn't care less about baseball. Um, her dad, who we used to uh, we used to call Papa, my Papa, um, was a uh, Cub fan growing up, and so he retired. He was a construction worker for the city of Chicago. He retired and started hanging around his grandkids a lot right when I was probably, you know, like five or six years old, or for me, four or five years old, like before I'd gone away to school, I wasn't going to school yet, right? Or I was going to half days or whatever. My older brother was already in first or second grade, so he wasn't around. My younger brother was even younger, obviously. So my younger brother and I sat with Papa and watched Cubs games at 105 on WGN all the time. While my older brother was at school and didn't get home until 3.30 or 4 o'clock, and by then the baseball game was over and we'd go play or whatever. And so my older brother and my dad were White Sox fans all growing up. My younger brother and I were Cubs fans. And so I was a Cub fan who went to 15 White Sox games for every one Cub game. My dad would take, my, my brother and I both had birthdays in June. So my younger brother and I would go to like one game sometime in the middle of June for our birthday. And then we'd go back to going to White Sox games. <laughs> so being a Cubs fan growing up, I'm sure you have a lot of friends who are Cubs fans. Have you converted any of them into Cardinal fans? <laughs> so my younger brother, uh, for example, was a... Uh, he and I were the Cub fans in the family. He was a Cardinal fan. I thought maybe I had converted him because there was a long stretch there where the Cubs were not very good and we were in the playoffs every year and he sure as heck showed up for every playoff game that he could and was there for the World Series and stuff. And then once the Cubs got good again, I realized that he had not actually converted. He was still he was still a Cub fan, which is fine. I don't, I don't blame him at all. Um, but yeah, you know, my dad, I think if you ask my dad now, he'd be a Cardinal fan before he was a White Sox fan. My younger brother loves the Cubs, but loves the Cardinals. You know, other than the times we're playing against each other, he's a rooting for us. So there's a lot of people who are who have who converted. But when you play against each other, you still root for the Cubs. Yeah, I, I always have to <laughs> yeah, when I get him tickets for games of rigged, I have to remind him, like, don't wear Cubs crap when you're sitting in my seats. Like at least <laughs> at least like wear a bear's hat, that's fine, but don't wear you know, so it's all good. You once said that, like most fans, you thought you, quote, could do better than the Bozo running my favorite team. What would you tell fans out there that think the same thing right now of you and your GM brethren? <laughs> I think, I think uh, that's how fans always feel. I mean, I still feel that way about other teams that I follow in other sports, right? If you believe that all of us in, in these chairs are doing the best we can, I mean, there's every incentive for us to do the best we can for our careers, for our families, for like every single one of us, like does this because someday we want to parade through our town. Like that's that's why, I mean that's why I quit a job paying a lot more to take an entry level job in baseball because like that that the chance to win something, right? No matter how well I consulted a company, no one threw a parade for us, right? Whereas if you do a good job in, in baseball, you can. I think if you believe that we're all doing that, which you should because we all have those incentives, then whether every move works out sometimes they just things don't work out the way you had them planned, right? But everyone's making the best effort they can to do the best they can. And if, and if you believe that there are some things that, that you know from being on the inside that you don't know as an outsider, that sometimes things that don't make sense to you, there's, there are reasons that, that, uh, that aren't public at the time that explain why X, Y, or Z happened. And I think the fact that our fans have access to so much information, know so much more about the minor leagues, know so much more about prospects, know so much more about how to like look at information and analyze it and you know it's great like the, the reason that they think they can do a better job than this is because they're so informed and I think that's great it's healthy for the sport and it leads to leads to great questions when you do Q&A's with fans it's I think it's fun that way but you know everyone's 
we're all highly motivated to do a good job. So, You mentioned you got your undergraduate degree in mathematics from Notre Dame, so not really a huge surprise that you're an analytics guy. How much do you value and rely on the work of scouts and evaluating players? Obviously, in this job, you can't rely solely on analytics. Yeah, I think... I think one thing that's interesting is in the in the ten or twelve years I've been in baseball now, at one point using analytics was the was unique. That's what made an organization unique was having an analytics department and using that to to supplement the scouts. I think we've reached the point now where every team has an analytics department, and really what makes you unique is how good a job your scouts do. The only stuff, the only information that we have that no other team has is the information we get from our scouts. Everything else is information that we buy from, you know, services or we collect from websites. I mean, we all are doing the same stuff with the data. And, and there is competition to how well you use that data and how well you make decisions off of it. But the only thing that we have that's unique to, to the St. Louis Cardinals is our scouting information. And so that's critical. Having, our, having good scouts, having them provide good information, having that information in a way that you can use it to help you make decisions is it's, in some ways, it's become more important, despite the fact that analytics has become more important, too, because it's the one differentiator. So now that all 30 teams have analytics departments that are using them to varying degrees, what's the next thing? What's the next thing that teams are going to try to work towards to gain that next advantage um, without revealing you? I was going to say, if, I had, own, if I had a really good answer, <laughs> if I had a really good answer, I wouldn't tell you anyway. Um, I think one of the things that you've seen a lot of teams invest in, in the last couple of years is what we call a performance department. Some teams call it high performance or human performance. Or, But the preparation that athletes do that leads up to them getting on the field. So whether that's sleep and nutrition and weight training and, you know, hyperbolic chambers and all the sorts of things that try to keep players healthy, try to keep them as as, as well prepared as, as you can to, to, to um, play at their highest level. I think that's an area that most teams are are investing in. Like we've We've reached the point where we're squeezing as much as we can out of performance data to predict future performance, but now it's like, well, can we help him perform better by putting him in a better position to succeed? And I think that's an area that we're all trying to get our heads around what the best way to do that is. In that area and in analytics, how important is it to get the players to buy into it? I mean, you can give them all the information you want. I know players get packets on their chairs with different hot zones and and different numbers and things to, to study and prepare for a game. But if a player is not buying into it, I imagine that's got to be, you know, you've got to do a sell job to some extent, no? Yeah. No, I think there's there are certain parts of what we do that we don't need any player buy-in whatsoever. So in terms of, like, the amateur draft and deciding who to draft, like, as long as the scouting department and everyone is on board with the process and the way we're going to use analytics, you're fine, right? But if you want, if you're talking about advanced scouting, if you're talking about, you know, changes in pitch mix or swing planes or approaches or where you position yourself defensively, like all those sorts of things that start trickling down to the players and asking the players to make changes to the how they play the game or make changes to how they live off the field. If you're saying like, look, your sleep metrics are bad or you're not hydrated, you're not eating well, right? Yeah, if you it, that's going nowhere if the players think that you're, if, if you don't have a trust level with the players, right? And so having people who are helping you know, push that agenda, gain the trust of the players, like gain the trust that all of this is to benefit you as a player. The fact that it'll also benefit the Cardinals is certainly like part of it, but this is not doing anything but helping you maximize your performance, your talent, and your career, right? And as, as long as you can get that buy-in with the players that that's what you're trying to do, I think it's it's generally not too hard to sell. Now, they might not understand how you figured this out. They might understand what the metric was that said that they don't sleep enough, but 
generally speaking, these guys want to maximize their careers. And so they're they're highly motivated to, to squeeze everything they can out of the baseball life that they have. 2014, you were a candidate for the Padres GM job before withdrawing your name. What went into that decision? Look, at that point, we had four kids. We had been in St. Louis for a while. So lifestyle, family stuff was, was part of it. I think when I started the path down getting a job in baseball, I wanted to be the GM of the baseball team. That was my only goal. By that point, I realized from the time I'd been in St. Louis and from talking to people with other teams that like kind of how good I had it in St. Louis. Between going to the playoffs, winning World Series, stability, an owner who supported us, a fan base who showed up every game, I just I was in a really good spot. And if I had stayed in that spot, if I had stayed assistant GM at St. Louis Cardinals and Mo had stayed GM and, and we just kept doing what we were doing, like that was a, I, was, I was in a really good spot. And so at that point, interviewing or, or considering other jobs became, I was just, I was more picky than I would have been in a different situation or I ever would have thought I would have been. Like I would have thought I would have jumped at every interview chance. Like if you'd asked me in 2006, would you ever turn down a GM interview? I'd be like, what, I turned down, what? No, <laughs> why do you think I'm doing this, right? But I'd reached a point in my life and in my career where I was like, look, this is, this is a really good gig I got right now. And, you know, San Diego's a long way away from Chicago. Like the grandparents don't drive down to visit, you know, like you know, it just, it was, it was just a time and place sort of thing that made it. So I decided that uh, I, was, I was happy where I was. Most times a GM comes into a team taking over for a recently fired GM right. or retired GM. Right, right. What's the dynamic like when you get the GM job, but the guy who was in the chair before you is still there and is still your boss? Right, right. Before my promotion, I reported to Mo and Mo reported to Mr. DeWitt. And after my promotion, I report to Mo and Mo reports to Mr. DeWitt. <laughs> so a lot's uh, changed. Yeah, it's, it's, look, it's... It's great. It's it's an organic, slow evolution. Ninety percent of the time, when the GM, a new GM comes in, first of all, he she's dropped down from someplace else. Probably doesn't know a lot of people on staff. You know, spends some time trying to figure out where they are and what the what's working and what's not. And in this case, you know, I know everybody around here. You know, I've been part of building it. There's there's some things that you know um, I want to focus on. You know, put more time or effort in versus what we've done in the past. But it's all like slow evolution. And I also have. The guy who's been my mentor for the last 10 years and a guy who's been incredibly successful as a GM down the hall. And so anytime I'm doing something that I'm not sure about or someone asks me a question and I don't, uh, I'm not sure how I want to answer it, I go and we have a conversation about it, right? And so it's great. It's an evolution as opposed to like a dramatic, you know, one day you are, one day you're not and now you are and your whole life, you know, flips a switch and it's, it's a whole different world. So it's been great. Several teams around the league have a similar type of org chart. Cubs have Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer. Twins have Derek Falvey and Thad Levine. The Rays have yeah. Neander and, and Heim Bloom. Uh, why do you think this is becoming a trend in the majors? I think there's a combination of things. I think one is the, the responsibilities of the general manager have changed over the last decade. I think if you talk about the, an analytic, functioning an analytics department and a functioning performance department, you've added two new departments to a baseball operations organization that used to only have like two or three departments, right? It used to be amateur scouting and, and, the, and the, you had an amateur scouting director and a farm director kind of, and that was, and now we've added, all of our, for now, all of our baseball operations departments are growing and getting more complicated and taking in more data and using data in different ways and hiring PhDs. And it's just more going on in that world than I think there had been in the past. And so that, that has changed. And I think the media environment we're in now, there's more blogs and stuff going. There's just more media responsibilities. It used to be, 
you know, when I was growing up, you read the paper the next morning and that was it, right? And then no one... They, maybe watch the 11 o'clock news. Yeah, right? then the next morning, you, yeah, and then the score said late because they play on the West Coast. You didn't even know <laughs> when the heck happened, right? Um, whereas now there's sort of with blogs and, you know, sports radio and, you know, there's just there's a lot more media responsibilities and other responsibilities like that that go into it. Um, and I think the other thing that teams are doing is that there's competition to identify and retain the best front office talent. And I think some teams are saying, look, these are people we don't want to lose. How do we make sure that we don't lose either of them? And one way to do it is to adjust the structure so that you can keep them both. Mo's been doing this for a long time. He's got established relationships with general managers around the league. How important has it been for you to establish your own relationships with the other 29 GMs? Yeah, so I would say the way we've sort of done this, and it's been sort of, again, like I said earlier, an evolution. We've been doing this for the last few years, is that there are certain teams that Mo has 20-year relationships with, right? Like Mo and Cash have been GMs together for a long time and known each other a long time. The Cardinals-Yankees relationship, like we kind of got that one covered, right? Turns out I actually know a few guys in their front office too. But, <laughs> but whereas the other teams, you know, like maybe the Twins, right? Like, you know, I might know some of those guys better, right? Or, or, or some of the younger GMs or some of the assistant GMs with some of the certain teams or what have you. So making relationships with all 29 teams is, is important. But as the titles change and as responsibilities change, even if you said, like, I need to have a relationship with all 29 other GMs, like, well, who is the GM of Team X, right? It's not always obvious, right? And so I know people with all 29 teams. Some I know better, some I know less. And some are I talk to just to check in every now and then. And some you only talk to when you're actually, you know, working on something or at least considering something. But those relationships are critical, obviously. It's kind of what we live on. There have been executives through the years who are very set in their ways. I won't trade for a rental player. I won't draft a kid out of high school. Uh, how important is it now, especially, to be flexible in your thinking in this job as the game continues to evolve? I think flexibility obviously is important. I'd like to think that we are set in our ways in that we have a process for evaluating decisions and that we stick to that process. That process does not have, like, we do not do rental players or we do not do lefties below, you know, shorter than 6'1". You know, we, have, we have to stay disciplined to a process or you sort of can meander off and make transactions that feel good in the moment. But, you know, if you're not looking long term, you don't have a plan. What we try to do is have a process that gives us an answer. And then sometimes we say, yeah, we're still going to do it or mm, we're still not going to do it. Right. But at least we say. This is what our model says is the right answer. And, you know, whether it's in dollars or runs or whatever, it says and this is how big of a gap it sort of implies. And we're okay going against that or, or, or overruling that in this case because of X, Y, or Z. But we like, we like to sort of be flexible around a structure that we're confident in. It seems that modern day GMs are less emotional than maybe they were 10, 20 years ago. Do you agree with that? It's one of those things that's like hard to answer when you weren't around 10 or 20 years ago, right? I don't know how emotional people were. Right. Um, I think... I think in some ways, I'm sure we're just as emotional. You know, when when you blow a ninth inning lead, I'm sure people punch the walls just like they've always punched walls, right? I think um, perhaps because we, as as a group, have a lot more systems and processes and models and things like that that don't rely on, I can't stand this guy, I got to move him or, you know, whatever. Transactionally, in terms of the, the trades and, and things we make, we might be less emotional. But I don't think, like... As human beings, or as you know, I was talking, more, I was talking more about the reactive. You know, Cubs won the World Series, and so now we have to go make a big splash, yeah. or you know, that kind of thing. It seems like, I mean, I, uh, having covered the Yankees for a long time, you know, fifteen years ago, 
it was, oh, the Red Sox made this big move, so you knew the Yankees were yeah. or something, or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I just wonder, it seems like GMs or executives these days maybe. And the word analytics just comes up way too much. No, but a little I more analytical than emotional in terms of how they approach the job of putting together their organization. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true as a function of who's in the who's in these jobs now. There's a lot. There's been a decent amount of turnover in the last five years, right? I don't know. Maybe a third of the GMs are new, and most of the ones who've come in are have analytical backgrounds or you know that sort of approach to to baseball. And yeah, I think if you're going to have a process that you stick to. You're going to be process oriented and not emotion oriented, and so you're you're going to probably have less reactive decision making. You've talked about the puke point in negotiations. Uh, I think specifically with the pools negotiations. Explain that. When we were offering uh, a, a large contract to Albert Pujols back in the uh, after the 2011 season, every time we would talk, you know, Mo and Bill and I would talk about sort of how do we feel about this, how do we feel about that. At some point in that negotiation, it was like, look. I kind of feel sick to my stomach if he accepts it, and I'll feel sick to my stomach if he doesn't, right? Like, I've reached the point where, like, I just feel sick to my stomach no matter what happens. <laughs> and, like, that's where you kind of have to stop, right? Like, you've now reached the point where, like, as long as you feel good if he accepts it, you're in a good spot, right? Like, if, if I add another couple million, will I still feel good? Yeah, okay, well, we can add that. That's probably okay. Like, And once you get to the point where, like, I don't know if I want him to say yes or no, like, now that that's the point I I refer to as the peak point. Like, I'm going to be sick to my stomach no matter what happens here, so we probably should stop because you don't want to be to the point where you're making an offer that you hope he turns down, right? That's, now you've just, you've crossed, that's where you become emotional, right? You've crossed into the point, like, what do you, what is this? Why are we even doing this? Um, And so in, in any kind of negotiation, there's a peak point, whether it's, Trading prospects for a superstar, whether it's signing a free agent, there's a point where you're just like, oh, I don't, do we even want this to happen anymore? And once you get to that point, that's when we try to just stop because there's nothing that good happens past that. Kind of putting that together with something you said before. You said, you know, you trade a player and you're just shipping him off and saying, you have to go live here. How tough is it to put those emotions aside in the job? I assume you form relationships with players and other personnel in the organization. Yet the business requires you to make these decisions when it comes to re-signing them or trading them or et cetera. Is it tough to think of it from a, from an organization and team standpoint and put aside the fact of, I like this guy and I know this is going to you know, make him unhappy, right. but right. this is what we have to do for the organization. I mean, it's, it's hard because we're, like, we're human beings who create friendships and things, but in general, it's something that we, like everyone understands that that's sort of what has to be done. There are cases where it gets harder and harder, right? And there are cases where at some point you reach a point where it's not just I like this guy or he's a friend or he's a good good guy for the organization to have around to where guys can kind of convert into like, you know, organizational icons, right? And then it's no longer like, hey, I got to separate the fact that he's a good guy from this decision I'm making to where it's more like, hey, Mr. DeWitt and Mo, and as a group, like, how do we value the fact that this guy is something special? Like, this guy is a part of the fabric of this organization for so long or whatever, right? And so, um, but but in general, you say, hey, you know, it's nothing personal, but we ended up with, you know, two catchers or four outfielders or three three shortstops, and, and you're the one who's headed to Town X. And I think most players understand, right? Like, it's not, like, everyone sort of like fans think they can do a better job than us. Like I think a lot of players think they, right, they, they understand, right? They, they can look at a roster and see how many, you know, left-handed relievers you have or whatever, and they understand what the needs are and what the choices are. And 
So in general, they're not like blown out of the water by by being blindsided, but um, sometimes it happens. We've all seen the Hollywood version of it. What's it like to actually negotiate contracts with agents? It varies all the time by who the agent is, who the player is, what the situation is. Sometimes it's a few text messages and you're kind of most of the way there. Sometimes it's, you know, weeks and weeks of like, hey, we're just not in the same place. You know, we don't think the market's going to go there. Oh, I guess it did. Or see, I told you it did. I mean, it just, everyone is a little bit different. Uh, In general, they're not what you see in the movies, right? Again, sort of like everything else. Like, however you picture agents, like they're just guys doing their best to get their client as much money as they can, right? And we're just, we're just guys doing our best to get, to get our team the best players we can, you know, with the budget we have, right? And so the, the negotiations are usually much more probably blasé. They're much more like negotiating to buy a car or to do anything else, right? They're just two people trying to, trying to find a spot that they both can live with. So yeah, I think Hollywood makes it a lot more glamorous than it probably really is. Probably makes a lot of things more glamorous than it's it really is. It's probably how Hollywood works. I, I would say any, anybody who watches a movie or a TV show based on the industry in which they work probably feels the same way about the way their industry is portrayed. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure like when, when I go watch something about the Washington Post, what's that? The, the Post, the right? Post. Like I'm sure I would be like, wow, the newspaper industry is so interesting. And I'm sure people in the newspaper industry would be like, that is not at all what the newspaper <laughs> industry is like. But, you know, what can you do? So were you biting your lip watching Moneyball? Th- there were some parts of it that were just silly, right? Like the part where the character Billy Bean flies to Cleveland to negotiate a trade. like that's... In the Indians' offices. Yeah, they just, they just walk into the Indians' offices and they all sit down. Like, and that's, you know, that was just like, why? Well, I haven't experienced that right. in my career, but maybe, I guess. You never I know. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Depoto is the only current GM that played in the big leagues. A lot of GMs played in high school, college. I know you said you, your peak was little league. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think more players haven't gotten into this area of the game? I don't know. I feel like there might be a little bit of a uh, movement back toward having players in front office positions. I think for a while there, being having analytics, looking at the world analytically, like that was a differentiator, right? That made you different. But when everyone's doing that, now what differentiates you? Something we talked about earlier is getting buy-in from the players. You know, using the using it to help players, and and some of that stuff just works better if you can relate to that, right? If you can say like, look, when I played, here's how I did it. But now I have data that shows why that worked, or it just it works better. So I think there's more and more players getting involved in front offices. Um, a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys who college kids who, whether they made it to the big leagues or not, you know, come from great academic programs and good baseball programs who, who are transitioning now to, to helping teams you know, build that link between the data and the players. And once you're sort of in that flow, then you know, it takes a while, but five or 10 years from now, I think there's going to be a lot of those guys who end up getting opportunities to, to, run, to run organizations. So it might be because five or 10 years ago, everyone was so focused on analytics that being an ex-player became less important, and so now at this moment, there that we're in that lull of ex-players. I think maybe we might be in a lull that sort of goes back up as more ex-players, you know, get get into this, get into front offices again. You said when you first got into baseball, your goal was I want to be a general manager. You are now. When you reach that goal, forty years old, what's next? Do you have other asks? Not obviously, I've only been in the job seven months. So I'm not trying <laughs> yeah. to push you into your next job just yet. <laughs> yeah. but do you have greater aspirations in the game, or is this a job that you'd like to do for 25 years? Becoming a GM was the goal when I thought about leaving my job and getting a job in baseball. At this point, the goal is, is to win, right? Like to to be in a parade where where you are 
you had a, your hands all over what happened. Like I, I was lucky. I started with the Cardinals in 2006. We won in 2006. I got a ring. I was sort of like, what's the big deal? I've been here. Since, <laughs> I've been here nine months. I've got a ring. Like who, this, this is easy, guys. What's the big deal? But that was something. You know, I was I was processing expense reports and giving guys directions. I didn't feel like I had a, a hand in it. Right by 2011, I was assistant GM. I'd been around for a while. A lot of the players that had come through our system, I'd been part of drafting, right? That was a different, that was a, a very different feeling of being like, we did this, not like, oh, those other people did this and I happen to work with them. But to take the next step and, 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 and be one of the main architects of a team that, that wins, the goal isn't just to get here. The goal is to get here and succeed, right? And so hopefully bring a couple more parades to St. Louis. Mike's been a lot of fun. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Many thanks to Michael Gersh for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. The Cardinals are looking to break a streak of three straight seasons without a playoff appearance, though the addition of Marcelo Zuna and the emergence of Tommy Pham could change those fortunes in 2018. Our next episode will feature a lengthy conversation with Blue Jays Vice President of Baseball Operations, Ben Charrington. We'll talk about what he's learned from Mark Shapiro, the ups and downs of his lengthy stint with the Boston Red Sox, and that time he took a golf ball to the forehead, courtesy of Theo Epstein. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.